The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. and welcome to another edition of Wizards Half. This is mini-episode 60.5. These are the episodes where we get into all the details we didn't have time for on the main episode, and seeing as the 5th anniversary bash issue of Wizard was a double-sized, ooh, you better believe we got a lot to talk about this time around. Another shout-out and thanks to Adam Riches for joining us. Man, those guys named Adam, they're such a good time, right? Yeah, we had a lot of great conversations there. Such an interesting, uh, talented person. Yeah, he's got a lot going on. I hope that you've been paying attention to his feed during all the San Diego Comic-Con fun that happened this weekend. For those of you who are lucky enough to be there, tell us all about it. Share some of your finds, especially if they were 90s related. Did you meet some of your favorite 90s creators and get their autographs or a picture? We'd love to see it. We are going to get right into it so we don't miss a thing, but let's start out like we always do with a little bit of the giveaway fun of Cap's Kooky Contests. All right, well, as you'll recall, we had an interview with Rob Schraub, the creator of Scud, the Disposable Assassin, and wouldn't you know it, there is an awesome contest to go with it. Fireman Press presents Ready, Set, Draw with Scud, the Disposable Assassin. He ain't the Terminator, but when it comes to getting the job done, few assassins are more reliable than Scud, the Disposable Assassin. And none are more fun to draw. So why don't you take out a drawing tool and draw us up a Scud? Maybe you'd like to do the old Reliable Heartbreaker series 1373 or perhaps you'd like to do an all new model whatever you do make it your best work because we here at wizard will narrow the entries down to the best of the best and set them off to scud creator rob schraub he's the green guy at left who will determine the winners of our frank free prizes Frank free prizes, like a hot dog Frank? I don't know. Grand prize. One lucky winner will have his or her entry printed as a one-page pinup in a future issue of Scud, the Disposable Assassin. And as if that's not enough, he or she will also get copies of Scud, the Disposable Assassin number one, current printing, and the Scud trade paperback, Heavy 3PO, signed by Rob Schraub, plus a Scud t-shirt. First prize, ten lucky winners will each get a copy of Scud, the Disposable Assassin number one, signed by Rob Schraub and Scud t-shirt. Second prize, 25 lucky winners will each get a copy of Heavy 3PO signed by Rob Schraub. Now, if you've been watching our haul videos on the Wizards Podcast YouTube channel, you know that I recently picked up three issues of Scud the Disposable Assassin signed by Rob Schraub. Didn't even know till I got him home. I was like, hey, what the? This is awesome. So they were later issues, not a number one for sure, but still kind of a neat deal. Now let's check out the legal contract here. Contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press Fireman Press and their immediate families, or Siskel and Ebert. What, you think Siskel and Ebert wouldn't review a Scud the Disposable Assassin movie well? Uh, I gotta believe that at, at least, uh, you know, Roger Ebert, he seemed to have a good idea of what was funny, what was not. Siskel, though, total wet blanket. Alright, let's check out the last half here. Offer void where prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof, in Frank we trust. Now, I have not gone back and read Scud the Disposable Assassin in a while. Am I forgetting that something about Frank? Everything was Frank? Frank free prizes? I don't know. I'm gonna have to check that out. One of you uh, big fans will be have to lay it out to us on social media. Alright, let's get to the next one. Alright, everybody seems to be a fan of this next saga. Dark Horse Comics presents the Star Wars Pop-Up Comic Contest. How to play. Hey all you Jedi Knights in training, here's your chance to win a first of its kind pop-up comic book. Star Wars Battle of the Bounty Hunters, starring the ever-fun, ever-armored, ever-mysterious We All Cried When He Was Ingested by the Sarlacc, Boba Fett. Written by Ryder Wyndham with painted artwork by Christopher Moeller, this pop-up part of the Star Wars Shadows of the Empire storyline is sure to be the grooviest Star Wars item since the lightsaber. And just because we're so nice, we'll give you a chance to check it out for free, and maybe even win some other cool prizes. Just channel the Force, become one with the universe, and fill out the coupon below and mail it in. You could be a lucky winner of one of our 
are cooler than Hoth prizes. Grand prize, three lucky winners will each get a copy of Star Wars Battle of the Bounty Hunters in $18 value and an uncut press proof sheet from the pop-up comic. First prize, 22 lucky winners will each get a copy of Star Wars Battle of the Bounty Hunters pop-up comic. This contest is sponsored by Dark Horse Comics and we think they're so swell. This is a cool idea. I mean, it's obviously, it's just a pop-up book, but with comic book panel pages, uh, but it's still a very interesting concept. And I want to know what an uncut press proof sheet from the pop-up comic looks like. Would it actually have the pop-up element to it or would it just be a full page? Like, hmm, very interesting. All right, well, let's check out the legal force. Contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Dark Horse Comics, and their immediate families, or Impossible Man. He's from the planet pop-up, you know. There's a deep cut from the Marvel Universe. That's pretty great. <laughs> I did not even pay attention. I mean, I know he pops in and out of the realities, but I never caught that he was from the planet pop-up. All right, let's check this out here. Offer void where prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof. Maybe Dark Horse will publish a barbed wire meets ghost pop-up book. Oh, baby. <laughs> well, there would be plenty to pop up. Uh All right, let's get on to the next contest. This is interesting because there is no coverage of this character in this issue aside from a single ad for Supergirl. Yes, DC Comics presents the Supergirl Dinner in a Movie Contest. You'd think that with a brand spanking new title by writer Peter David and artist Gary Frank coming out, Supergirl's social schedule would be pretty full. Well, it is. But she's going to circle a day on her calendar and make it available for just one of her readers. How to play? That's right, Melvin. There's a day Supergirl is keeping open for a date with a wizard reader. Want to be her lucky escort? All you have to do is tell us where you'd go to dinner with her and what movie you'd see. Nothing more. Now, how simple is that? Fill out the entry form and tell us your dinner and a movie combo. The best entries will win courtship prizes. Grand prize, one reader whose combo we think would make for the best date will receive that date with the maid of might herself in the pages of a future issue of Supergirl. Upon completion of a release form, we won't make you sign it in blood. Honest. The winners likeness will be drawn into a future issue as Supergirl's date. Of course, after that, Peter David will probably kill you off, but hey, easy come, easy go. Oh yeah, the grand prize winner will also receive a one-year subscription to Supergirl and 25 complimentary copies of the issue in which they appear. That's actually pretty awesome, so you can brag to everybody. Uh, second prize, 10 readers who also come up with some swell dates will receive a one-year subscription to Supergirl and a copy of Supergirl number one, out in July, autographed by Peter David and Gary Frank. That makes me wonder, did it last a year because from what I recall and I'm sure when I talk to Michael about this he will fill me in it was not really well received it was like an interesting experiment but it didn't catch on so did it make it a full year we'll see this contest is sponsored by DC Comics and they're chaperoning this whole affair so keep your hands to yourself alright so I literally just showed the 1984 Supergirl starring Helen Slater to my wife for the first time I had brought it up to her in conversation because you know those things will come up in a conversation with me and how big a fan I was as a kid. I have multiple copies on VHS, big box, the slipcases, you know, the Blu-ray, all that stuff, some random ephemera from the movie. And she was like, you know, I've never seen that movie. I started describing the plot. She's like, just stop. I think I want to see it. I was like, what? So I showed it to her and uh, turns out, I mean, she made it all the way through, but uh, she basically just said, oh, so this is a stupid movie. I'm like, well, the director was French and he said it was a fantasy movie. I mean, it was directed by the guy who directed Santa Claus the movie. So, you know, you're gonna have that fantastical element to it. Anyway, as far as how I would enter this contest, right? What would be my dinner and my movie to take Supergirl to? Hmm. Well, here's what I recall about the summer of 1996. There seemed to be a lot of alien movies. I mean, you know, a couple at least, because you had Mars Attacks, which I love, and you also had Independence Day. And so, like, when you think about those particular movies, those are not very nice uh, aliens. Oh, The Arrival also came out that year. So it's kind of that thing where you're like, yeah, they're attacking Earth and this maybe she's a, a kindly alien, right? You want to encourage her to enjoy life on Earth. And so I think I would actually go for a movie just like to get her, you know, it's a date movie, right? You don't want to get too intense. So how about Swingers? Yes, with Vince Vaughn and John Favreau. I think Swingers would probably hit the spot <laughs> for Supergirl. And as far as where we would go, I think we would uh, just find ourselves in a diner 
somewhere in LA and then find a hotspot where they were doing, you know, all this, maybe even like if it existed, you know, the Pulp Fiction Diner that John Travolta takes Uma Thurman to, you know, and maybe just do some old school dancing or maybe I'd go to a, you know, an actual swing club, which was all the rage at this time as Ska was coming into vogue, right? So I think that's what we would do. We'd do a little swing dance and she'd probably throw me around the dance floor with her super strength, but we'd have a good time. So now it's time to check out the legal courtship. Contests open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, DC Comics, and their immediate families, or Chuck Woolery. Aw, oh, you don't want them to help you make a love connection? Come on, we love Chuck Woolery. Next one here. Offer void where prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof. Come to think of it, anyone who ever appeared on the TV show Studs is ineligible to. Alright, well, I will say this. So, love connection was much more wholesome than Studs. I definitely remember watching Studs on the Fox Network. Network and be like, nah. <laughs> these guys are sleaze balls. And I was only like, you know, 10 or 12. The last contest is a biggie. Joseph Koch's Avalanche of Wonder presents the 1001 Comics Contest. How'd you like to lay your fanboy paws on 1001 Comics? Just think of the possibilities. Imagine the fun, sorting, sacking, rolling them into tubes, and smacking your little brother upside the head with them. Heck, you might even want to read a few. Well, you could get your grubby little hands on a veritable avalanche of wonder 1001 comics including a few rather valuable ones if your research abilities are good enough how to play just answer these 10 questions oh these aren't just any old easy trivia questions no siri bob you have to work for this one we want you to use your research skills to get these answers which can easily be found in the comics listed get out those comics and search don't have the issues check out a friends go to the local comic store and look them up find reprints go to the library just find them so number one here in uncanny x-men number 129 wolverine is standing in front of a magazine rack reading a magazine what is the mag's title i know normally wouldn't know this because I'm not a classic X-Men fan, but my buddy Jeff, aka Logan 77 on Twitter, who has been our Wolverine expert in the past, I believe he shared this once, and Wolverine is standing there with Colossus. I am almost certain he was reading a Playboy. Okay, I could be wrong, but uh, somebody check me on that. Probably Jeff. Alright, number two. In which unlikely place do Spider-Man and Captain America meet in Marvel Team-Up number 128? I know there was a disco in issue of one of those, but I don't think it was a Captain America team up, so I'll have to pass. Number three, Tony Stark beats alcoholism by capping a bottle of whiskey in Iron Man number 128. What's the brand of whiskey? Ooh, there's a question. Is it a real brand or was it one that Marvel made up? Uh, number four, who is being eaten by a group of Springfield elementary students at the beginning of Simpsons comics number 13? <laughs> number five, according to the highway sign, how many miles from Las Vegas is Lex Luthor when he returns to Earth and Superman the Man of Tomorrow? Oh, number three. Wow, these are deep pulls. Number six. Which Russian novel do Black Canary and Blue Beetle discuss in Justice League number three? I don't know. We'll see. What is Martha Washington's serial number as shown on her dog tags in Give Me Liberty number one? Number eight. What is the first song Foxglove sings at the club in Death, The High Cost of Living number two? Number nine. What food is Wonder Woman eating on page five of Wonder Woman volume two number 65? I mean, I know she was working at a fast food restaurant restaurant according to one of those Brian Boland covers. Was it French fries? Hmm. Number 10. What is the year make and model of the car John Sable and Mike Blackman drive at John Sable Freelance number 22? Oh, only the Mike Grell diehards out there are going to know that one. Okay, so the grand prize, if you could guess all those correctly, or not even guess, I guess, research them. One lucky winner, randomly drawn from among all entries who get all 10 questions right, gets all 1,001 comics, including Amazing Spider-Man number Number 23, featuring the Green Goblin. Comico Primer number 2, the first appearance of Grendel. Marvel Superheroes 18, the first appearance of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Plus tons of copies of Wolverine, Uncanny X-Men, Spawn, Lady Death, Batman, and whatever else we can get our fanboy paws on. At the time, it feels like that Guardians of the Galaxy first appearance probably wouldn't have been that big a deal, even though the 90s comic was fairly popular. But imagine now if you had held on to that. Okay, so let's check this out. It says, this month's contest is sponsored by Joseph Koch's 
avalanche of wonder for a catalog of 150 plus tabloid sized pages of comics, golden age to current, plus movie monsters and fantasy magazines, fanzines of foreign comics with over 200,000 different listings. Send $3 to Joseph Koch and it gives his address in Brooklyn, New York. So that's kind of interesting, right? That you could say, I have a business. I sell comics. Why don't you run a contest for me, wizard? And I'm sure I have to pay out the wazoo, but it was worth it. All right. Legal research. Contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Joseph Koch's Avalanche of Wonder, and their immediate families, or Lucian the Librarian. Anybody? What comic is Lucian from? Offer void where prohibited regulated or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof. Hey, does Wolfried's mom know he's reading that magazine? I knew it! See? I was right. It is that Playboy. Ah, oh, that is hilarious. Okay, see? I knew one thing. It pays to know an obsessive X-Men slash Wolverine fan. Alright, well that does it for Cap's kooky contest as far as the new contest in this issue, but to close out, there is a follow-up to the create-your-own amalgam character contest now, if you remember our past guest, Ben Morse, former wizard staffer, uh, he actually told us that he had submitted to that contest that I believe he said uh, was a mashup of the New Warriors and the Teen Titans, if I remember correctly. Could be wrong. Correct me, Ben. But this is the person who actually won. Uh, interesting here, Brian A. Garber of Kent, Ohio is the winner of number 54's DC Marvel crossover contest with his cool combo of Nightwing and Gambit. And the name he has chosen for this character is Blackjack. So yeah, so basically if you look at it, it's mostly Gambit, but then his leg, like you can see, he was obviously as a portion of the Nightwing costumes. You can see like the, you know, the golden little, I don't even know what you call that, but the flourishes. But then he's got like a staff that is glowing purple, and then one leg is like all metal. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with, you know, Gambit or Nightwing. But anyway, pretty cool uh, combination there. I think it, it definitely deserves to win for how cool those individual characters were. And now it's time for another edition of Robin's Reading Rainbow. And this time, it's not just a name, geeks. That's right, we are going back in time to review Robin 2, The Joker's Wild, the second miniseries starring the Tim Drake Robin. Now, here's the thing. Why are we doing this? It's not in the timeline. This is way back, about five years from when the magazines we're covering were happening. The reason being is that I have always wanted to complete reading this story. Okay, so I was a huge fan of the Tim Drake Robin miniseries when it first came out. I bought the issue where he debuted in the costume for the first time. Like, somehow I was totally plugged into this idea of a new Robin. It was executed so well. The costume was so fantastic. And then from that point forward, they really did an awesome job of developing the character when he got his own ongoing series eventually. But before all that, DC kept testing the water with these different miniseries. And even before Robin to the Joker's Wild, they had done a three-part story arc in the Batman comics called Shadowbox, which reunited Robin with the gang and the King Snake guy that he had been fighting in his miniseries. So they really were trying to figure out, is this a flash in the pan or do people really enjoy this character? So DC decided to give it another go after that with Robin 2, The Joker's Wild. And the thing you might recall about this, aside from the fact that Robin is facing off against the Joker alone, we'll get into that in more detail, is the fact that this was really like the height for this moment of the gimmick covers craze. And so what DC did was they released all these covers that had an actual like hologram on them as if it had been like a hologram chase card and trading cards, right? And so you had a Robin one, you had a Batman one, you had a Joker one, you had a Bat Signal one. But what they did was like each cover had like four different covers, I think. I think they did, you know, each of the holograms, they may have actually had five because then I think they also released the ones that were just a drawn image with no 
hologram. So it was just out of control. They even did, I believe, like a collector's pack or a collected edition where you could get all the covers. So they really were just trying to say, how far can you milk this craze? For me as a kid, I only bought like the first two issues. I don't know if it was a money thing or if I just got distracted by another comic I wanted more, but it was one of those things that I didn't finish the story. Like there were all these covers I remember seeing at the comic book store every week. For some reason, I just stopped buying them and it's always been a blank spot for me. It's been something I wanted to return to. And so in the meantime, between 1991 and now, I had been reminded of Robin 2. How? Well, yes, I had a couple issues in my long box all those years, but I also had worked uh, as a marketing manager for a company and I went out to a printing production plant at one point where they were going to print up some catalogs for us. And the guy was so proud of all like the unique printing projects they had done over the years. I go into his office to discuss the deal and he has on his wall a framed uncut sheet of the Robin 2 holograms. And I was like, do you know what that is on your wall? He's like, yes, we did that for DC Comics in 1991. It was one of my favorite projects ever. He was the guy who printed all of the holograms to go on the covers. And I asked him if that thing was for sale and it was not at the time. I want to check in with him now because he's got to be close to retirement. Say, sir, please, can I have this? Because that would be a wonderful trophy to have up on the wall and kind of complete the circle. But in the meantime, now, uh, last month, I was able to go to this local secondhand store that started carrying somebody's comic collection that they must have just bought all their long boxes. And they had all the Robin 2 issues. Maybe not all, but man, they had a lot. I just grabbed one of each, issues one through four, with a variant hologram on each one. So I have an example of each of those. I don't need every single one. I don't need to be a completionist in that way. But now I finally read the story and I'm ready to bring my thoughts to you. So the story opens in Arkham Asylum where the Joker's lawyer is basically saying, hey, you can't hold him here forever. He's been rehabilitated. He has the right to leave. And of course, there's somebody in Arkham's like, this is not a good idea. Don't do it. And then his mother comes to visit. Joker had a mother? Well, as a skinny, frail body in one of those, you know, veiled hats and a black dress brings in a holy Bible. And of course, the Bible shoots out Joker gas and kills everybody except for the Joker and his henchman who then escapes so in a mere five pages the joker is indeed wild and on the loose and so it begins now uh, you see that Tim Drake as Robin is on patrol and he explains Gotham's expecting a cold winter. Must be a lot warmer down where Bruce is. Wish I was in Rio by the CO with him. So I just love the efficiency of storytelling here as immediately after that the bat signal shines in the sky and Tim realizes he needs to go check out what Commissioner Gordon has for Batman and he says you're gonna have to deal with me because Batman is not available and you hear the Joker he escaped from the asylum two hours ago and Tim's just like whoa so the next panel is him talking to Alfred he says the Joker I'm not ready for this Alfred I haven't been at this long enough to go against a heavy like that on my own but Alfred has faith in the young lad saying chin up Robin just because that madman is abroad again doesn't necessarily mean he's coming to Gotham to make trouble but of course we know he is definitely coming to make trouble what are you thinking Alfred now what's interesting is when you cut to the next scene where of course the Joker has set up in some type of novelty factory because always right? And his gang, because he was at Arkham Asylum, has joined up with Mr. Freeze. Now, what got me excited about this is it's the Mr. Freeze costume that Toy Biz made the action figure of. I didn't know that came direct from the comics. I had never seen Mr. Freeze in this era. I'd only seen him on the Batman 66 TV series. And what's crazy is the Joker basically comes in and he literally just goes to Mr. Freeze, shoots him with water, which freezes over him, right? It makes ice. And then he's zaps him with an electric joy buzzer and there it is he's dead i mean it seems like he killed mr freeze at least i guess they don't say he's dead but the top of his dome explodes and he falls on the ground so that's kind of crazy that they would just kind of dispense mr freeze he was such a non-character at that point or a non-threat i guess i don't know like i was reading quite a few batman comics in this era and i didn't remember ever seeing him so they must have just kind of relegated him to c-level villain of course now we have robin 
and Alfred looking for clues and patterns in the newspapers, but they also get some clues from the asylum itself, and you see Tim say, most of the articles and books in his cell were by or about Dr. Osgood Pellinger. Alfred says, you feel that the Joker has an affinity for Dr. Pellinger? Or they share common interests. The doctor's area of expertise is the growing danger to society of over-reliance on computers. He says it's the environmental issue of the next century. So now they're realizing, okay, the Joker has something to do with computers now. And so they go on a little stakeout. They check on Dr. Pellinger at his estate because everything, everybody's got these nice big mansions. It seems like Gotham City, if it's like New York, there's not much room in that city. But anyway, he seems to be fine. But wouldn't you know it, the Joker was just outside in a garbage truck. We're assuming coming to scoop up Dr. Pellinger. So Tim jumps in. He breaks open the windshield and you see the Joker just slack-jawed staring at him. You! I killed you! I killed you! You're dead, dead, dead! Well, just have to kill him again, that's all. Kill the little birdie. Yes, yes, first things first, though. Things to do, places to go, people to kill. You see Robin is just like, wow, he is crazy. <laughs> so, of course, they do capture this auto Pellinger guy, and now you realize that Tim has failed a little bit there, and he's let the Joker get away, so now he's going to make good on his promise to take over for Batman. He says, what if this psycho figures out that Batman isn't in Gotham? Dear, that hadn't occurred to me. He'll go ballistic. He's not afraid of the police. Batman's the only thing that keeps him in line. We have to convince the Joker that Batman is still in town. And how do we do that? We'll need a brilliant plan. If you think of one first, let me know. And that is the end of issue one. We get that nice little cliffhanger there. What is the plan going to be? I just want to stop real quick and just mention the art here by Tom Lyle is everything you expect. It's everything you want it to be. Tim Drake looks like he did in the other miniseries. He looks like he's been looking in the Batman comics. So, I, you know, sometimes they would switch up artists or, you know, the other, the original artist isn't available. I'm glad they were able to get this done the right way. It's Chuck Dixon writing. So it's just, it's all the flavor of everything you wanted from Tim Drake Robin. But again, we have this question, right? What are they going to do in order to make it seem like Batman is still in town? So they do a little test run and you see that Robin has a holographic projection system. This big portable machine that he has to set up on a rooftop and so his test run is on these punks that are trying to break into this facility and then he just kind of points to Batman up on the roof and they freak out and take off right so so a success but Robin indicates in his dialogue that those punks are too low level to spread the word so he's going to need a more public test run but anyway the next scene they have these just great moments with the Joker just setting up how sinister he is so it's really strange you have this woman that is showing up to this darkened room she's like, hello? Is anyone here? Oh, so glad you could make it. Look, I got this card for some guy I met at the agency. The part is a simple one, my dear. All I require is that you scream. What? Let me hear you scream. Eek! Tisk tisk, a bit more enthusiasm, a bit of motivation. Imagine that there are figures in the dark all around. Imagine that they're reaching for you. Hands from the dark pulling, clawing, taking you away to a place of torment and humiliation. Your only escape is to raise your voice and let all your terror out for the world to hear. Such beautiful music. Yeah, so it's just like this really dark thing. I'm like, again, what is he doing with this woman? What is the setup here? Uh, so you see, uh, once again, they're in the Batcave loading up all this giant equipment to project a hologram. Robin and Alfred take to the streets and they're on top of a building. You see that Alfred is all set up and ready. And that is where you find out what was the audition for? There is that actress on the edge of the Transcon skyscraper and she is just screaming. <laughs> And as soon as she gets there, of course, Robin doesn't know anything about that, so he shows up to save her. But it's all a distraction, as you find out, because the Joker is breaking into the phone company and hacking into the system, which is really interesting. You're like, but why? But why? Well, we'll find out soon enough. Anyway, so then as soon as he breaks out of the building and he's done his dirty work, you see that he looks up and there's that projection of Batman on a rooftop. Rats! The flying rodent finally makes an appearance! Let's make the best of a bad situation. Hand me something lethal, boys! I want to say howdy to old long ears! So the Joker starts firing an Uzi at him, and of course, as soon as he shoots over there, you see the Batman hologram kind of fades. I guess just the image has been disrupted by the reflection on the bullets. Joker just goes, what? 
<laughs> and the Joker has decided, oh, maybe not so much uh, of a threat after all. Tim shows up to battle him. But of course, again, Tim is not used to fighting the Joker one-on-one. You know, he almost gets sprayed with acid. He gets smacked in the face by his cane. The cane has a sword inside that he's about to stab him. But the cops show up just in time. Joker throws down a gas bomb and runs away. Meanwhile, Robin's got blood trickling down his face. He's feeling like a loser. And you see that the Joker goes back to his lair with Otto Pettinger, who is now totally drugged. And he's basically got him like to where he's super out of it, but he'll do whatever the Joker says. And he says, where was Batman? What was the deal with that optical illusion I shot holes in? Who is zooming who? Could it be that Robin is home alone? Gotta love the pop culture references in 90s comics. But yeah, so now you see Joker realizes that the kid is on his own, just like Macaulay Culkin. And I guess he is going to be Joe Pesci, although he looks more like Daniel Stern. So when issue three starts up, it's very reminiscent of Batman 89 because you have the Joker broadcasting over TV. He's taken over the airwaves. <laughs> love that Joker. And he basically explains that he has tapped into the phone system and the computer systems all over Gotham, which means he could sow his unique brand of chaos. So, for example, like the police, he deducted hundreds of bucks from their paychecks so that they'll be mad. He told the firemen that they have been laid off and ends with this bit of twisted comedy. And I'm sure you saw the news about the welfare mom who got busted for $10,000 in parking fines. The punchline, she doesn't own a car. So that's fine. But then the other part of it, too, which is interesting, is now you get shades of The Dark Knight Rises because Joker takes over the Jumbotron at a Gotham Giants. I didn't know that was there. I guess that was the football team back then. A Gotham Giants football game. And what's going on is he is basically saying that he wants a billion dollars in cash and he wants Batman to deliver it. So this is like the ultimate gamble now for Tim. He's the only line of defense that Gotham has. Can he get it done? Does he have the guts? Now, Tim does try to use his computer hacking skills at first to see if he could just like, you know, break through and get the control of all these systems away from the Joker. But the Joker kind of anticipated that. In fact, he was counting on it. And when he's on the computer screen, the Joker basically says, I know it's you, Robin, and thinks he can track him back to the Batcave. But luckily, Tim shuts it all down. It's interesting, though. He's like, I thought I was invading the Joker's program, but he was invading mine. The Batcave security safeguards are compromised. The system is violated. Have to shut it down. All of it. The Joker wins again. The brain of the Batcave is dead. So again, just raising those stakes, right? Like there was something up. Okay, it's not working. It's not working. Joker's very disappointed. He doesn't get to kill Robin in the Batcave. But the thing we love about Tim is that he is resilient. He is a detective at heart. So what he does is actually goes to Pellinger's house, starts digging around for clues. How can he snap him out of his you know stupor this drug-induced situation that he is in and so he finds a picture of a boy and his dog which he thinks might just work to his advantage in the future but then as the issue closes out here you have robin talking to commissioner gordon he's like i think i might have a way of finding out where the joker's hidden cold room is but we have to draw him out we'll use the cash and batman as a lure your men will raid the hideout and i'll face the joker i can't place the fate of this entire city in the hands of an adolescent besides you've only nearly escaped death at the hands of the Joker twice now. He'll be expecting you this time. If Batman were here, he isn't here. You know he didn't pick my name out of a hat for this job. I wish I felt as brave as those words sound. To be concluded. In issue four, which opens with the Joker and Robin each making their plans and preparations for this confrontation, I guess you'll call it, that they're both planning for, each trying to outsmart the other. So you see Alfred is out with a computer in hand and Tim is on a rooftop in the Robin costume and he says, just get online and run that program. It'll run on every email and interactive public system. I figure the Joker has Pellinger monitoring all of them. He's at the center of the Joker's whole scheme. As soon as you get a response, phone Gordon on the cellular and give him the payphone number. They'll trace the call from the phone company and they locate the Joker's mainframe. Before you go, sir, I just wanted you to know that I know the pressure you're under and I doubt 
Batman could have done any better than you have done. Coming from you, that means a lot, Alfred. I only hope I've done enough. So, what Tim has done is he has rigged up this garbage truck that is supposedly filled with the billion dollars. Joker has said he wants it out on a bridge, and that the Batman dummy that he has created looks like he's driving it, even though Tim has, you know, a control in hand. So, it's really interesting to see, because in the meantime, back at the Joker's base, there is this special email, right, that they were sending, and it is a picture of Pellinger's dog. So he's like, you know, in a stupor, and then he goes, hmm, Pixie? Good girl. You know, so you see he has come out of it. But back to the action on the bridge, it is again kind of maybe an inspiration for the Dark Knight, because you see that the Joker is there watching it from afar, where the garbage truck has been parked, and he sees Batman, or what he thinks is Batman, in the cab of the car, and he says, hoo-hoo! So the bird brain boy wasn't left by his lonesome after all. Now it's time for Mr. Batty to go bye-bye. He gets to ride ten sticks of dynamite into Gotham Harbor. But, uh, what if we really is a billion dollars in that truck? Tax deduction, business expense, it would be worth a trillion dollars to know that Batman is finally dead. It's not about money. It's about sending a message. See you on the other side, long ears. <laughs> of course, blows up the bridge, blows up the truck, and then uh, Robin says, now, while they're surprised, now, while they're off balance, now, while I still have the guts, we see that Tim was also afar off from the bridge. He attacks the Joker, knocks him down into the snow, and the Joker had his own ice skates in his boots, so he starts skating away. He says, jingle bells, Robin smells, Batman's gone away. It'll be a Merry Christmas because the Joker's here to stay. And so he gets up in this some sort of factory. Well, I don't know what it was supposed to be, but it's kind of similar to where the Joker became the Joker, right? At certain origins, at least, as the Red Hood. And he's got this awesome glove that has these little eyes sewn into it. And so it looks like a little horse or something, but it's maybe supposed to be a bull, but it's got these blades that come out of it for the horns. So he's trying to stab Robin until Robin finally gets the upper hand, uses his momentum against him. He says, thrust, put him off balance, then kick him forward, and down he goes. So it's into some sort of, I don't, again, I don't know what this stuff is. It's very brown and it's very liquidy, so you can draw your own conclusions. But it is kind of like, I don't know, anticlimactic is the right word, but I guess you would expect a little bit more of a battle because basically that's it. Like, you know, the police show up, Joker and his men are captured, and Robin had won. I mean, he outsmarted him to the best of his ability, a little bit physically, and then you see that he is there uh, back in Wayne Manor, recovering with a spot of tea from Alfred, you know? And in the closing panels, Tim says, we beat him, didn't we? We most certainly did that. Master Bruce will be most pleased when he hears of it. Whoa. And Batman walks in. Hear about what? Yeah, so he's literally in the Batman costume coming back. And then there's kind of a prologue at the end that you just see the Riddler and Two-Face, they're just kind of mocking the Joker because they say, the Riddler asks, if the Joker had no nose, how would he smell? Terrible! <laughs> and everybody's laughing at all the other cells, you know, so Joker, I guess it was some sort of uh, waste management plant because on the final panel, you see the Joker is just all disheveled and he says, he's mine. The little bird is mine. Do you hear me? None of you touch him. He's the Joker's property from now on. And next time, he'll stay dead. Ooh, so now there is definitely a vendetta brewing between the Joker and Robin. It used to just be Joker terrorizing Batman. Mm, now the sidekick once again. So yeah, so Robin too. I mean, I really liked, again, like it was just so well handled in terms of how would Tim do this, right? Like he's in the shadow of Batman to a certain extent, but he's got a skill set that is kind of beyond Batman as well. That's what makes him such a great partner. And how can he use that on his own? with a little bit of help from the, you know, the myth of Batman, the intimidation factor of Batman. So the hologram thing was kind of fun. But I especially, I just loved how devious they made the Joker. He wasn't a goofball. I mean, he was this classic dark humor, you know, but I just feel like this was a very, very successful follow-up to the original series, especially if you're going to involve a heavy hitter like the Joker. And the fact that Tim comes out on top, again, I 
had a feel like there could have been a little bit more to the fight. Maybe it could have seemed a little more, mm, I don't know, dangerous for Tim because it seemed like he used his brains and he figured it out and that's great. But you want to see, you know, him get injured at the end. You know, maybe he's got to have some stitches or something. He mostly made it out unscathed. But Robin 2, The Joker's Wild, there you go. A very literal Robin's Reading Rainbow. But let's get on to the next segment. Now it's time for a laugh as we check out our Mort of the Month. And this time around, we have the one and only Detective Chimp. First appearance, The Adventures of Rex the Wonder Dog, number four. A monkey? I'm not sure what's worse here. The fact that a Detective Chimp exists or that under his secret identity, it reads Bobo. Dear God, this is worse than those Liefeld Captain America sketches. Oh my goodness. They were literally just promoting them. Wow. Okay, uh, getting back to this here. Anyway, what's Detective Chimp's deal? Let's make this quick. Sheriff Chase adopted Bobo when his first human parent was murdered and made him his unofficial assistant, and he solved case after case until old age slowed him down and he and pal Rex the Wonder Dog drank from the Fountain of Youth, which reverted him to a young and bouncy monkey again. End of story. So they felt like they, in addition to just like having a talking chimp and having a dog who was wonderful, I don't know. It feels like Rex the Wonder Dog should be in here too. But they then were immortal because they drank from the Fountain of Youth. That seems like a hat on a hat. And he is wearing quite the Sherlock Holmes hat. I think this is the highest Mort rating thus far because this Mortometer has all but one filled in. So it feels like they really thought he was the Pits, which is hilarious to me. Anybody a Detective Chimp fan out there? Uh, I know that there was like some talking chimp Sherlock Holmes character in the 70s as well. I'm trying to remember. It was like Lincoln something. I don't know. What was it? Ow. Lancelot Link, I think. Yes, Lancelot Link. Why do I know this? I wasn't even alive in the 70s, but just this nonsense pop culture stuff that I have where they literally was kind of like Mr. Ed, I guess, with chimps, you know, like they just had people dub over the actors, the chimp actors, you know? Anyway, that's crazy. And I think we've talked enough about, uh, you know, Detective Chimp. Let's get on to the next segment. All right, so this is just kind of a fun thing that they did for issue number 60, and that is they gathered quotes from all five years of the magazine and added them onto the bottom of pages. They dubbed these sound bites, just random stuff like this one, which says, double covers, bagging, and other gimmicks seem to have a positive effect on sales. John Davis, Capital Cities Distributors, Wizard Number 1 from September 1991. What's funny is a lot of the quotes that they have pulled are quotes that I actually have pulled as well. And so it's kind of fun to see what I thought was funny and what they thought was funny. But here's another one for you. I don't remember this one, but she's out selling Superman and Batman books. That's wrong. Superman's been around for 60 years. My book shouldn't be out selling Superman books. Billy Tucci, Wizard 56, April 1996. Wow, that is crazy. If those numbers are true, that is insane that she was out selling the DC juggernauts. All right, what else do we have here? Gotta have a quote from Rob, right? So it says here, the bottom line is Jim Shooter gave everybody the definitive Avengers and Legion of Superheroes. I'm hoping he can give me the definitive young blood. Rob Liefeld on the mythical team up with Shooter, Wizard number 32, April 1994. Definitely remember reporting on that, and yes, something that still to date has never happened. This one I don't believe ever actually appeared in the magazine. This is just pulled from the Wizard bullpen. I'd rather you ruin sex than ruin Wonder Woman. Wizard contributing editor Mark Wilkowski on his favorite character. 
<laughs> I'm surprised they didn't, they didn't have a follow-up joke about the fact that Mark had never had sex or something like that. All right, next one. It's going to have a naked lady on the cover of the first issue. If that doesn't sell, nothing will. John Byrne on Babe, Wizard number 35, July 1994, and then this one. I figured since the comic industry is dominated by the male consumer, they'd do just about anything to get their hands on a Helena nude variant cover. Lightning Comics, Steven Zakowski, Wizard number 44, April 1995. So yes, definitely a sign of the times Wizard was going to remind us of. Here's another one pulled from the Wizard bullpen. I shoot pool right, and I can't tell you the other thing without giggling. Wizard production director Douglas Goldstein on his right-handed abilities. But there is another wizard staffer with a quote taken out of context here. I saw a 10-inch Punisher. Wizard assistant price guide editor Phil Colligan on what we hope is a Toy Biz 10-inch action figure line. And here's another guy who is normally serious around the office from what we hear, but when he got to conventions, he was getting a little loose. He says, if you're looking for trouble, I've got the map. Wizard Senior Managing Editor Joe Yanarella's alter ego, Convention Joe at Jack Murphy Stadium in San Diego. <laughs> here's an interesting one from a master we lost too soon. I consider style to be what you do when you're not good enough to do it perfectly. Neil Adams, Wizard 46, June 1995. <laughs> Man. It seems like he was speaking directly to all the image founders, right? This one's a little harsh from a man we all love. He says, A lot of people said I'd never work again after Batman. Bat actor Adam West. Who hasn't really worked since Batman? If you had just waited a few years for Family Guy to get on the air, Adam West, right, becomes a cultural icon once again, revived in the consciousness. Oh, we love him and we miss him. All right, this one baffles me. I have to be honest, I hate first issues of anything. Rob Liefeld, who is currently set to draw Captain America number one, Wizard 21, May 1993. He hates first issues of anything. That's pretty much all you publish, Rob. You just put out first issue, first issue. Hey, we got something new, first issue. Wow, that is somebody who does not know what they are all about. But no sooner do I say that than we get some great insight. Somebody who is looking within, quote, if you're looking for highly intellectual thought-provoking stimulating material, I'm probably the wrong guy to go to. Rob Liefeld, Wizard 10, June 1992. So he is an enigma, right? Oh, both sides of Rob. He gets it, he doesn't get it. And let's close out with the Wizard staff quoting one of their own yet again. I don't think I can handle that. It's a little bit different. She's a woman. Wizard contributing editor Mark Wilkowski on the differences between the sexes. Seems like the staff really love picking on old Mark. I mean, he even went on a daytime talk show, right? To talk all about dating and women. So, wow. R.I.P. Mark Wilkowski. There you have it. A couple of sound bites from the first five years of Wizard. But let's get on to the next segment. All right, so in that last segment, we heard a lot of quotes from some of the Wizard staffers. Of course, we've had a lot of fun interviewing them on the Wizard Files, but back in the day before that was a possibility, there was a full feature written for issue 60 called Wizardry, How an Issue of Wizard is Made in 22 Easy Steps. So this is by Jim McLaughlin. Day one, it all starts with a planning session that actually takes place a good three or four months before the issue in question even hits your hands. We order pizza and get together in the office of McCallum and Cunningham. Usually suspects typically include Senior Managing Editor Joni Anarella, Managing Editor Scott Grambling, Production Director Doug Goldstein, Editor-in-Chief Pat McCallum, Copy Editor Andrew Carden, Contributing Editor Mark Wolkowski, Editor Brian Cunningham, and yours truly, Promotions and Publicity Manager J. Joseph McLaughlin. So he wasn't just answering those letters, guys. We talk about what's going on in the biz and see if we have any cool story ideas. We ultimately hash out what direction we want the issue to go in and what feature articles we want to do. We try to determine everything from the cover right down to the wizard profile and casting call. Although lots of changes are always made over the course of the next few months as we hear more news and information changes. In fact, the cover to wizard number 55 was changed at the last second when we learned about unfinished business, aka Heroes Reborn. It was originally slated as an X-Men Rogue cover, but was hurriedly switched to a Jim Lee Fantastic Four cover, which meant we had to add a feature on unfinished business. As far as the direction for 60 goes, we went with the big five-year anniversary theme. So 
then it says here, as soon as we have an idea of what the heck we're doing, we get people to do it. The high-flying tag team of McCallum and Cunningham creates an in-depth outline and Scott Grambling farms out the work to freelancers. So there were uh, quite a few freelancers that contributed and we haven't talked to many of them. We talked to mostly the full-time employees. So maybe down the line, we'll get in touch with some of the folks who are contributing that way. Now it says here, you need pictures? Go with words. So librarian, art researcher, manatee lover, Dan Riley, and his assistant Phil Colligan are hunting down the proper comics and photos to go with the articles. And then they say day 16, that cover needs to get done early. We get artist Bart Sears cranking on this issue's Hulk cover as soon as we get permission from Marvel. Comic magazines almost always have him to get permission from the owner of the property to put a character on the cover to use old Jade Jaws on our frontier space. Now they talk about the drawing board art contest. This is something we did talk to Arlene So about. It says here, drawing board is something we could do early in the cycle. So, so, designer Arlene So, that is, and the aforementioned Mr. Riley start sifting through the mass of entries. And so you see them selecting what they think are the winners. You also have Jim McLaughlin here talking about, I start mowing through the letters that go into making magic words. And we get a great word balloon here of Jim saying, let's see what we got here. Dear wizard, who would win in a fight between Johnny Cash and Lobo? Hmm. I wonder if they mean Lobo the comic character or Sheriff Lobo. Either way, it's got to be the man in black. <laughs> the toy column and toy price guide have to be done every month. So McCallum and Cunningham stay on top of the trends and big newsy stuff. They call this research and it shows Pat and Brian playing with their toys. Well, not their toys, you know, action figures. All right, and then they talk about the actual price guide. Meanwhile, back in Chattanooga, Tennessee, senior price guide editor and all-around snappy dresser John Warren, who is in touch with over 2,000 people a month, pounds down the Joe and does the hard work that's needed to compile the comic book price guide. Again, guys, they really did try to keep it as accurate as possible, despite what people think. I mean, that is something we've heard time and again from people who worked on the price guide. Now, also here, this is kind of funny, they have Mark Wolkowski again. Mark Wolkowski, who wore a tie this day specifically, because he knew he was going to be photographed, make sure the trailer park, our movie and TV column, is up to the minute. Also, Andrew Carden, past guest, compiles Junk Drawer, our coolest Frozen Alligators comic merchandise column. He gets the neatest damn stuff in the mail. Definitely going to post this to social media because the stuff that is sitting around his desk is fascinating. And one of them in particular is a Mars Attacks novel. That is a novel that I recently found at a thrift store. So I have that novel. He's also got his hand resting on a copy of Spider-Man The Venom Factor by Diane Duane, which I actually did as a book report during this time, just before this was published. And also there is a copy on CD of Saturday Morning Cartoon's Greatest Hits. All of these things I have within reach. So it's just so exciting to see them in the wizard offices at this time. <laughs> really caught my eye. Next here they say, hey, this guy again, Mikey the Knife Fasolo, also a past guest. Go check out that interview. Ashley gets paid to sit around and read comics. He does the if you missed blurbs that run in the price guide. So you guys might recall instead of quotes normally, at least at the bottom of the price guide, they have comic books and then like a very brief synopsis of the plot. And he told us that was one of his favorite things to do back then. Speaking of which though, in this picture, Mike is actually uh, sitting in a chair where he has a jean jacket behind him. He has told us about a wizard jean jacket with like embroidered wizard logo on the back. And he is says when he goes back to his parents' house at some point, he's going to take a picture of that for us because I want to see what that looks like. Now, another guy who we talk to a lot online here, they say the perfectly quaffed Steve Blackwell is our head designer and chief consumer of regular bread. The designers actually compose the pages that are as responsible for the look of the magazine as our editors are for the content. They choose which pictures to use based on clarity, how striking an image is, and how it ties in with the actual editorial. But honestly, like that is such a huge part of why people enjoyed reading wizard, right? Like you have to actually read the words to enjoy the comedy, but a lot of people were just flipping through for the visuals, right? Like they do with comics and who are in charge of the visuals? These designers, Arlene and the one and only Steve Blackwell, among many others who contributed over the years. So I just think that's pretty awesome. And an interesting step here, it says, after the pages are designed, black and white copies are printed out for the editors to use their magical red pens and give them a final proofing, at which point the pages are set to have film made of them. The film is then used to actually 
actually print the magazine. Then film comes back. It's checked out by the staff to make sure everything is just right before it's sent to the printing plant. We can make last minute news updates and price guide changes here if we need to, but it's pretty expensive to do so at this point because it requires the reshooting of film for whatever pages we change. If something is big, we change it. No question asked. Massive news events like the death of Superman co-creator Jerry Siegel and huge price guide movements are worth the extra expense it takes to be up to the minute. For example, in this issue when we discussed Mark Silvestri leaving Image, it sounded like that was definitely a last minute change they had to add because they even had a little piece at the bottom explaining that it was indeed a last minute piece of business that they added. So that's kind of cool. Uh, now, they also say after 105 days, this whole process takes 105 days, the issues roll off the presses. They are hermetically sealed and botulism-free multicolored poly bags and sent to your local comic shop. Fresh as a daisy for you to enjoy. Whew, that was some month. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, it's time for a comic reading break. Yes, we are getting paid for this. It's all the name of making a better magazine. Gotta keep our finger on the pulse, you know? The time-space continuum at Wizard Press works a lot like it does in comics. It takes a lot more than 30 days to make a monthly magazine. While we're putting together Wizard 60, we were also working on issues 61 and 62, and there's even more. We didn't show you all... We didn't even show you all the other people who allow us to do our jobs without a receptionist to answer the phones or customer service people to handle the problems or a circulation department to distribute the magazine or someone to empty the garbage. We'd never be able to write, edit, design, or even sit around and read comics. At the risk of sounding sappy, it's a team effort. Every issue is the culmination of efforts from a number of people. The bottom line is that it's a job. And like any job, we bitch and moan about it from time to time. But all in all, we dig it. We have fun with it. And we hope you do too. So there you go. There is just a peek inside the process of creating Wizard every month, which is in a lot of ways what this whole shebang is about, right? When we get together, we're reading you the content, but we also love to speculate and then get the inside scoop from the Wizard staffers as often as we can. How did you guys accomplish this thing month after month and apparently many months in advance leading up to the month that we were getting the issue? All right, well, let's get into some more fun. Well, now it's time to close out with the top 10 comics for June 1996. Now, what I've been enjoying about the last few top 10 lists is that unlike maybe the first 50 issues where it felt like a lot of the same books were there forever, there's been a lot of changeover. And I don't know if that was Wizard maybe, you know, saying, hey, we need some variety or if it actually the volatility of the industry at this time where, you know, some things were just popping up that were new, that were exciting, and some were catching on a little bit later. But uh, let's check out the number one spot here with Preacher number one. Give me that old-time religion. You know, that fire and brimstone and repent ye or burn for all, all eternity kind of stuff. Hey, damnation sells. This must be true because preacher number one is the numero uno selling back issue. How can it lose? You get a decapitated angel, a grungy British vampire, a church full of fried corpses, a hard-drinking preacher possessed by the love child of an angel and a demon and lots of blood. Preacher is not only more violent than a Sam Peckinpah movie, and we do like our violence, but with its unique combination of humor, horror, and body parts, it has been selling like the proverbial hotcakes. And if you want to talk about scary, this issue introduces the patron saint of killers slaughtering his way across Texas. You know, I don't seem to remember learning about the patron saint of killers in Sunday school. So yes, again, we're getting into this darker era of more adult comics for sure. It seemed like, you know, in the early 90s, it was more violence for violence sake. Maybe not so many adult themes, but definitely with Garth Ennis there, whew, you're going to get into some darker adult theme stuff. But speaking of Garth Ennis... In the number two spot, it's Hitman number one. Listen, you want to know a secret? If you ever get in a fight with Batman, don't vomit on him. It really pisses him off and he'll punch you real hard. How do I know this? I read Hitman number one. Remember the Bloodline storyline that ran through all the DC annuals a couple years back? Well, the coolest thing to come out of it was Hitman. He's a meta assassin with a conscience. He only kills superpowered bad guys. Yeah, what a novelty. <laughs> anyway, not only does this comic have the popular dark and gritty art, but like Preacher, it's written by the one guy who probably had a worse 
worse childhood than Jeffrey Dahmer, Garth Ennis. Ennis and John McCrea put together a fun and bloody series that takes the dark humor of the Vertigo books and puts it smack dab in the middle of the DC Universe. DC heroes, watch out! So again, Garth Ennis ruling the roost at this time. Interesting here though, in our number three and four spots, we have Witchblade. So it says here, Witchblade number one, here's the scoop. Undercover cop Sarah Pizzini, dressed in the smallest dress we've ever seen, jumps in front of her partner when he's about to get mowed down, and kapow, she takes a fair share of slugs herself. As Pizzini lays dying, the HR Giger-looking Witchblade, some mysterious magical artifact that some bad guys were messing with, bonds or something with her, granting her all sorts of weird magical powers and stuff. Now Sarah can form body armor over her entire body, or except her chest. This book does have to sell, after all. Shoot flesh-melting fireballs, spin a web any size, the whole nine yards. <laughs> so yeah, so you get the origin there, but then in the number four spot is Witchblade number two. In possession of what appears to be the two things you need to make a hot comic nowadays, Sarah Pizzini, the modern-day Witchblade, has planted her feet firmly in the top ten, with the medieval Spawn Witchblade miniseries, written by the ever-popular Garth Ennis fella, and the upcoming Tales of the Witchblade series, chronicling the other people who have worn the Witchblade, adding fuel to her fire, it appears that Witchblade will be the top biller in Top Cow's increasingly popular stable of comics. Heed our words, Top Cow is a studio to watch over the next few years. Ooh, that was very true, and they were all in the news as we're discussing between this issue and the next. Yeah, Mark Silvestri made some choices, and uh, yeah, definitely got him the spotlight for a minute there. Number five is The X-Files number one, where it has been forever. It says here, The last couple of years, one of the coolest shows on television has been The X-Files. Who'd have thought the comic series would prove to be just as popular? It now seems the premiere issue is just as hard to find as the Lucia prophecy is in that very first issue. Fortunately, reading this issue will not cause most of you to be vaporized or to commit suicide. With its eerie plot lines and mysterious conspiracies, many comic geeks out there are buying up this book. Nothing strange or unexpected about that. All right, but guess who's back here? Speaking of X, Wolverine number 100 is number six. Zoinks! When was the last time Wolverine's been in the top 10, or Marvel for that matter? It's been a few months either way. Well, guess what? Wolvie's feral again, and what everybody thought was going to happen, his regaining his adamantium, didn't happen at all. Instead, he went totally wild and physically regressed. But if Wolverine's now more feral, wouldn't his senses be even more heightened? And if they were, wouldn't his nose get bigger and not smaller? His nose is practically non existent. But the issue's so darn good, I'll stop picking kicking on his nose. <laughs> number seven, Lady Death in Lingerie, number one. It is so funny here because all these have like the writers and artists, right? This says, writer, none. <laughs> Does Lady Death look kind of like Farrah Fawcett or what? Okay, so maybe Farrah had a nice healthy tan and two pupils and rarely grimaced menacingly on Charlie's Angels, but Miss Death definitely has Farrah's hair. And if you want to see more LD and all her Farrah-esque glory, you got to check out Lady Death in Lingerie. A veritable plethora of top name artists have contributed to make this one of the breast, <clears throat> I mean, best collection of pinups in years. Wow. And I think the thing they failed to mention here is I do believe that also as part of this, there was a wizard contest where if you designed an outfit for Lady Death, it would go in that issue. So Wizard should have been playing that up. Could have helped the Chaos Comics guys sell a few more issues. But let's get over to number eight, Dawn number one. Within this month's top ten are five beautiful, scantily clad women that have been known to wield long, stiff, pointy swords. Is it me or do all these bad girls have a bad case of penis envy? <laughs> and what about the tall, vertical, phallic-like cathedral that points straight to heaven in Dawn number one? Could be. Well, we're sure one thing, that Dawn is one hot commodity with fans. Lindsner's beautiful art has made this issue more rare than a rap gangsta in Dickinson, North Dakota. Wow, there was a lot to pull out of that, wasn't there? Phallic-like cathedrals, penis envy. Hmm. Number nine, she number one. You know, everybody loves a clown, but they'll ironically kill a mime if one comes within 10 feet of them. Well, although she wears the white makeup, she also talks, so that'd put her in the clown phylum. That may be why this heroine is such a smash hit with collectors. That and the fact that Tooch and the Gut write one main story of a martial arts master caught between two cultures. What would you do if you moved from conservative and traditional Japan to the center of all comic book universes? New York City. Fight crime? Natch. And we'll keep watching she do just that, because the art's top-notch too. So we mentioned on social media that this issue actually came with a Lady Death, the Crucible half offer. There was a variant cover and all that stuff. We talked about it on the main episode as well. But when we posted it to our Twitter, somebody was like, you know, I just never got Wizard's obsession with Lady Death and She, because they were just, you know, marginal books with hot women in them. But it really does feel like at least they were the cream of the crop 
of all the bad girl imitators and things that happen. There did seem to be something quite different about those characters, right? They did have deeper thoughts and anguish and things they had to deal with. I would say Lady Death was a lot more, uh, you know, outrageous than she, but certainly, I mean, I, I having read them now, I understand why comic book readers would say, you know what? Yes, a beautiful women, but it's good enough that I don't feel bad about reading it. You know, it's like there is something here. Anyway, speaking of bad girls, we're going to round out here with number 10, Angela number one, but kicking Angela is back and she's on trial for treason for hunting the endangered sand dolphin dragons without a license. Suffice it to say, Neil Gaiman writes a great story and Greg Capullo's art is as prolific as ever. This busty thong wearing dragon hunting big haired angel is just as hugely popular now as she was when she made her debut in the pages of Spawn. Talk about your endangered species. Just try and find a copy of this issue. When this major babe's long-awaited series comes out, we see her slice it up the charts with gusto. So there you go, guys. Bad girls still ruling the roost uh, when it comes to the top 10 list, but a couple surprises there eking their way onto the chart. But that does it for this edition of Wizards Half. want to thank you again for joining us, for checking out all the extra fun that there was to be found in these pages. And hey, if there's something we missed, if you have the issue, share it with us on social media at Wizards Comics on Twitter, at Wizards underscore comics on Instagram. Of course, we want to tell you what you can look forward to on episode 61. Well, Michael's back. Yep, it's just your regular old Michael and Adam show, the standard host, and all the nostalgic fun you've come to expect from Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. I will tell you, of course, though, we do have many more guests lined up to come in future episodes. We just sometimes like to just have a time together, right? Two buds talking comics, getting into it. Of course, we did have an interview that's coming up on the Wizard Files for you with Ron Mars. Oh, the prolific Ron Mars. Steven Sapelis and I sat down with him. It'll be very apparent which side of Ron Mars's work each of us is obsessed with. So we did have a lot of fun talking to him. He was a very cool guy. We want you to stay tuned for all the fun that is to come. If you have time to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or just retweet and tell people, I mean, honestly, the amount of people that are just finding it like, hey, you know, I happen to come upon somebody's post and now I found the show and they almost instantly become guests. I want to talk about Wizard. So that's been a lot of fun. So keep doing what you're doing. It's helping us out a lot to grow the podcast. But in the meantime, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.